So obviously we are still in the Gospel of Matthew. I thought about changing up uh, the sermon topic and actually preaching about Father's Day. I did a message once about geyser dirt, um, since we were made from dirt, and I decided you can go back and just listen to that one. I'm going to save you that one today. But I thought that today's topic is also really appropriate for, uh, for dads, for parents as a whole. We're going to talk about the topic of falling away. And uh, it's kind of a, of a sad thing, but something that I think is a fear of every parent, as well as um, a reality for, for many of us as parents. So falling away. After celebrating the Passover with his disciples, uh, Jesus was telling them that he was going to be crucified in just a few days. And the disciples were obviously very upset about this and distressed about this. And from there, they headed back to the Olive Grove, the Mount of Olives. And I can imagine what was going through their minds as they just celebrated this meal where Jesus talked about shedding his blood and dying and being crucified for them. It was probably a pretty quiet trip as they headed back out of the city to the Olive Grove the thoughts, is he really going to die? Is this really going to happen? We're going to have to watch him. What's going to happen to us? What's going to be next? Now, if, if you've ever been in a leadership position, you might be thinking, this would be a really good time for a motivational speech, right? Let's give him the pep talk. This is, it's the third quarter, it's the fourth quarter, and you're already, and you're down, <laughs> It's not looking good. So here's the pep talk Jesus gives them. Follow along with me, if you will, in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 31. Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you will fall away because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Well, truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. I'm curious, how many of you find that to be a motivational message? No? The message of Jesus had been very clear up to this point, that he was destined by the Father. He was appointed by the Father to be handed over to the chief priests and to the scribes, sinful men, that he was to be mistreated and abused by them, that he was to be taken by Gentiles, by the Romans, and to be crucified by them, that he would die, he would be buried, that he would raise again on the third day. And he's told them this at least four times that we have recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. But now, there's this other message showing up. Now, there's this message that the 11 disciples that are with him at this point, because Judas is not with him at this point, the 11 disciples that are with him, Jesus looks them in the eye and says, you will abandon me, all of you, without fail. You will abandon me. Now, the word we have in in the CSB and in most translations is the word fall away. How many of you have the word fall away? The words fall away there. Do you have that in your translation? Okay. The word for fall away is the word scandalize. We've used this before in the Gospel of Matthew. 
Scandalizo. And it means to cause to sin or to make to stumble. It's been used um, in Matthew six times, five times, excuse me, five times for leading people into sin. If you cause one of these little ones to sin, if you scandalize them. It's been used three times about being offended. If you cause this little one to be offended. It's been used at least twice about people who have fallen away from their faith and given up on their faith in God. I think here the emphasis is on those, the first and the third options, especially the, that falling away of, from one's faith. The disciples are going to desert Jesus completely. Now, while most translations use the phrase fall away, the New Living Translation says, actually says desert, if you have the New Living Translation, that you will desert me. Um, every now and then I like to go to a Bible called the Complete Jewish Bible. Have you ever heard of that one? It's actually written by a council of Jewish scholars who have taken, uh, who, who I guess we would call them Messianic Jews. They believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and they've taken the New Testament and translated it from a, a Jewish perspective. And in the Complete Jewish Bible, it says this. Oops, there's a scandalizo. Um, Yeshua then said to them, Tonight you will all lose faith in me. As the Tanakh says, I will strike the shepherd dead and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. You will all lose faith in me or abandon me. In this case, the disciples are about to lose faith in Jesus, to abandon him completely. Now, Peter's response is almost predictable, isn't it? I mean, Peter's that guy, you know, who... who it's like act and then think. It's ready, fire, aim, you know, kind of thing. That's, that's a Peter thing. Um, Peter's response is pretty predictable. He's going to utterly deny it. Absolutely no way. But there is an arrogance in Peter that really needs to be worked out. A, a big-time arrogance. Peter is still acting as if he is in control of the situation. And he's not willing to submit to the will of the Father. And it's a major theme of this section. The arrogance shows up in two ways. First of all, Peter calls Jesus a liar. Think about it. Jesus looks Peter in the eye and says, and all the disciples says, you will all fall away. And Peter says, no, I won't. He's basically saying, now, Jesus, you're lying. You don't know what you're talking about. Could you imagine the audacity of looking the Son of God in the eyes and going, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. We got this. It's not as bad as you think, Jesus. When we reject what God says, we make, out to, we make God out to be a liar, and the truth is not in us. And then, as if that's not enough arrogance, Peter compares himself to the other disciples, <laughs> and he says, even if they lose their faith, I certainly won't. Now, I'm not sure how I would have reacted if I was the other, one of the other ten. Could you imagine? All right, so imagine we're in a church situation like this. The church family's together, and Jesus is here with us, and he looks out at the group, and he says, all of you are going to deny me. And then I stand up and go, well, you know, Jesus, even if all of those guys, even if they all abandon you, I won't. How would you feel? You'd be like, that pompous pastor? Who does he think he is? The arrogance of Peter 
in this condescending statement is something that needs to really be squashed. And I think the Apostle Paul put it this way, and here's a great reminder from him. This is, this is later on after these events. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this, whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so you may be able to bear it. Whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Peter thinks he stands, and he's not going to be careful. He's not going to rely upon God's spirit. He's going to rely upon his strength, and he's going to fall. And while Peter might have seen himself as being above the other disciples, the only thing that Jesus sees above in Peter's life is the amount of failure he's going to have in the days to come. Because not only are all the disciples going to desert Jesus, Peter's going to deny him three times. You're not greater than them, Peter, but your failure is going to be even greater than theirs because you refuse to stand in the will of God and understand God's will and to stand in, you're standing in your own. He says, mark my words, you will deny me three times before the night is over. And of course, Peter denies it. And the others deny it. I mean, think about it. How could you possibly spend years of your life with Jesus and turn your back on him? Right? Could you imagine that? How could you possibly spend years of your life traveling around, living with Jesus, eating meals with Jesus, watching the miracles, listening to him teach? How could you possibly be around that for years and then somehow just turn away from it all? Now, the lesson that Peter's going to learn, as a side note, is going to change him forever. And we're going to see that happen by the end of this book. But for now, he stands in his arrogance. And on the surface, this does not seem like a very motivational message. It's not a very motivational passage. However, I have come to find this as a very motivational passage. This is a super motivational passage, as a matter of fact, for both the disciples then and for us today. Do you see it? Do you see the motivation in this passage? Anybody? Where is it? Jesus says, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Though Jesus assured his disciples that his disciples would all lose faith in him, he also assured his disciples that he would rise from the dead and then he would see them again in Galilee. After his resurrection, he will go before them to Galilee and meet them there. Now, Galilee is the place where Jesus started his earthly ministry um, in chapter 4 of Matthew, we read about that. The disciples were told that they would get to see Jesus again after his resurrection. I think one of the reasons Jesus told this to his disciples is because he knew that they would deny him. And he wanted them to know that he still looked forward to seeing them after the resurrection. In spite of their desertion. See, it's possible that we could turn our backs so far on God that we believe that God would not want to even have a relationship with us, that God would not want to be with us, that God would not want to embrace us once again. 
We, we probably believe the story of the prodigal son, but we really don't think it would apply to us. And we might believe the lie that we've done something so great that God would never want to accept us back. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, listen, you all will desert me. But after I rise from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and I will meet you there. In other words, I look forward to seeing you again, even though I know what you're about to do. There is a place for you at the end of this still. I think that's so important for their restoration, and it's such an important message for us today too. It doesn't matter how far we've run from God. There's always a way back. But we're also talking about the sovereignty of God in this passage. It's a big phrase we use in churches, isn't it? Sovereignty, the sovereignty, you have to say it in a different voice, the sovereignty of God, right? That God is in control of all things. And I think that's also part of this message of hope and motivation. It's about God being in control no matter what. No matter what sinful men do to Jesus, he will rise and he will see them again. No matter what the disciples do, even if they desert him, he will rise and he looked forward to seeing them again. Nothing they could do could squash the work of God. Jesus was confident that God had all things under control and that nothing can change the plans of the Father. And I think that there are times in our lives where our world seems a bit shaken and we're wondering, is God still in control? I imagine every family who's ever been a part of a, of a school shooting has asked themselves that very question. Anybody who's lost anybody in a tragedy has asked that question. Perhaps a verse we should keep tucked in our mind at all times is that you can make many plans, but it is the Lord's purpose that will prevail. God's work will be done. His work will be accomplished. Jesus said, all of you will fall away. Now that's a prediction, and it's a statement of fact. He went into confidently saying, listen, you will do this. I know this. And the reason I know this is because God said it would happen. Matter of fact, God knew it would happen 500 years beforehand. He talked about it through this prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 13, especially in verse 7. That's where this quote comes from. With this, will kill the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. About over 500 years previously, Zechariah made a prophecy that Jesus is now referring back to that he would be killed and that they would desert him. That's how much God knows of what's going on. Before these men were even born, God knew what would happen. And even though the disciples thought they would not deny Jesus, God already knew that they would. And this can lead to a lot of rabbit holes, can't it? This is a fun theological rabbit hole. So did God make the disciples fall away? Did God just know that the disciples would fall away and therefore he just worked around their will? Free will versus God doing, doing all the work. It's like, you can debate that for thousands of years. And people have. At the end of the day, this passage doesn't speak to that point. What it does speak to is the fact that even though Jesus told his disciples that they would deny him ahead of time, and the scripture said that they would deny him, and even though the disciples had that knowledge and said, nope, even though we know ahead of time, we're not going to deny you, they still denied him. It doesn't matter how much you know, 
ahead of time, God's plans will be accomplished. You and I are not powerful enough to thwart God's plans. And I find comfort in knowing that. Nothing I can do can mess up what God wants to do. Now, what I do might make it a lot harder for me. Think of Jonah. But nothing that God wants to do can be thwarted by anything that I do. So that conversation that Jesus has after the disciples leave the city, the gray cloud covering over them, that storm cloud, knowing that Jesus is going to die, and then Jesus looks him in the eye and says, listen, you will all fall away. He still ends up motivating them and giving them hope for the future because he said, but after I rise from the dead, like I said that I would, I'll go ahead of you and I'll be there with you. I think there's some great hope in that. So the next thing they do is they get to the garden in Gethsemane. This is obviously a place they had been to before because Judas, who's going to meet up with them shortly, knew to look for Jesus there. So read with me as we continue in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Then Jesus came to the place called Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking along Peter the two sons of, and the two sons of Zebedee, he bless you. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little further, farther, he fell down, face down, and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So then he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping, and he asked Peter, So you couldn't stay awake with me even one hour? Stay awake and pray, so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, a second time, he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came back again, and he found them sleeping, because they could not keep their eyes open. And after leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. So Jesus leaves the disciples behind, with, walks on with Peter, James, and John, and he tells them to stay awake. And we read that Jesus was sorrowful, troubled, and deeply grieved. Have you ever wondered why? What brought Jesus to that point? Was it because of the rejection of the people? Was it because the disciples were going to abandon him? Was it because he was thinking about the pain and suffering that was awaiting him on the cross? I would say probably yes to all of them. Jesus was both grieved and troubled, yet at the end of all of that, he was submissive to the will of the Father. And I think Jesus' prayer is a model for you and for me when we go through tough times, times of extreme sorrow, 
of extreme pain and, and grief. Jesus' prayer was this, if it's possible, remove this situation from me. However, I will do what you want, not my will, but yours be done. Regardless of what we're going through, it is okay to ask God to remove the pain from our lives. But we should also be willing to submit to the fact that that may not be God's will. Are we willing to surrender to him and accept what he brings our way? We certainly can make our requests known to God. As a matter of fact, we're commanded to, we're told to. Philippians 4, 6 says, Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. However, we're not to be so bold and arrogant as Peter as to tell God what he needs to do. This type of prayer is not healthy. Instead, it's okay to pour out our heart to our Father, but in the end, He is not subject to our whims. We must become subject to His will. Are we willing to accept from our Father what He brings our way, even if it is not what we desire, even if it's painful or hard for us? Not my will, but yours. We often joke, um, I, say we, I often joke about having two prayers for people, my selfish prayer, my spiritual prayer. So my selfish prayer is, well, my spiritual prayer is that God would take each of you. Some of you are military, you're going to be moving a lot, moving around. Uh, we're going to say goodbye to the Hodges today. It's their last official Sunday as a whole family here. And it's my spiritual prayer that God would take you and plant you and use you for his kingdom wherever he takes you. It's my selfish prayer that he'd keep you here. Right? Not my will, but God's will be done. It's okay to have the selfish prayer and to pray that God would do things that would benefit you and your family and what you believe would benefit his kingdom. But at the end of the day, we have to be willing to accept the fact that he is the one that's in control and we need to be submissive to whatever he wants. So have your, spirit, your selfish prayer, but make sure you also have your spiritual prayer. Not my will, God, but yours be done. So Jesus prayed, and one of the topics of his prayer was about this cup. Father, if it's possible, let this cup be removed from me. It's kind of a weird thing to pray for, isn't it? Let this cup any idea what that's referring to? It's not a phrase we use a lot, but it's actually a phrase that shows up in the scriptures quite a bit. Quite a bit. Um, it's sometimes referred to as a cup of suffering. It's often referred to as the cup of wrath, of God's wrath being poured out. The disciples, um, we, we see this earlier, actually, in the Gospel of Matthew. There's a passage where, <laughs> I love the way it was phrased. Let's see, it was, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus to make a request. It's such a weird phrase. I just love it. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus and said, Jesus, can you grant that my sons will sit on your left and on your right? This is Matthew chapter 20. And Jesus answered, Matthew 20, verse 22, 
you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? We are able, they said to him. Well, he said to them, well, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those who have been prepared, who has been prepared for by my father. Um, the two disciples that Jesus is talking about are James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And if you remember, again, it was, it was Zebedee's mom that came to him. Jesus, when he went to pray, he took with him three people. James and John, the two who are going to drink the cup that Jesus is going to drink. And Peter, who said he would never deny Jesus. There's a reason those three are there. There's definitely a reason those three are there. So what exactly is this cup? Um, I can, some references, they'll be online on the sermon notes online um, from Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah, is often referred to as the cup of God's wrath or God's judgment on someone. And I think it's when Jesus talks about this cup that's being poured out on him or this cup that he has to drink, I think it's evidence that Jesus knows about the type of death he's going to face and why he's facing it. Um, it's Jesus' personal desire that God would not pour out his wrath on him. But at the end, he wants God's will to be accomplished. And this is where Jesus' victory over himself occurs. And, and the reason that that's important um, is because of the contrast to Peter that we're going to talk about in just a minute. See, Jesus did not need to die for himself. He chose to be submissive to the Father and to die in, in our place out of obedience to the Father and his love for mankind. He was about to drink the cup that his Father had prepared for him, and this meant bearing on his body the sins of the whole world. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, that he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus knows that he's about to take the sins of the world on his shoulders and the wrath of God for that. I think it's a fair prayer. <laughs> Father, if it's possible, take, take this cup away. Do, do it a different way. But if this is the only way, I'll do it. And at first, the first prayer that Jesus had was that the Father would take the cup away. Right? Going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, let it skip right by. Figure out another way. To face the wrath of God for the sins of all mankind would have been a, a horrific thing. I cannot imagine, and none of us could, what that would be like. We do know that if it meant nothing else, it meant that he would be separated from his father because on the cross he ends up crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Because God had to turn his face away. Jesus prays this prayer, goes back to the disciples, and they're sleeping, right? So he goes and he falls face down, he prays, he comes back and he finds the disciples asleep. And who does he call out? Not James and John, who does he call out? Peter. Now Peter's the guy that said, even if I have to die for you, Jesus, I will not deny you. And even if those people deny you, I won't. And Jesus says, Peter, couldn't you even stay awake an hour? 
You know, you, big, big strong guy, tough guy, the guy who is gonna stand up and take on the whole world and die by my side, you can't even stay awake an hour and you think you're gonna be okay through this? I mean, he calls him out and I love it. Um, Peter would speak boldly about commitment to Jesus, but Peter would cut off, and he would cut off the ear of the one who came to take Jesus, but Peter was not able to do the most important thing. He was not able to stay awake and pray. I think sometimes I am a lot like Peter. I think it's, I, it's easy for me to do many things for God, and I'm willing to talk about and to defend God. But sometimes the struggle is very real to remain in prayer with my father. Do you know what I'm talking about? Charge the gates of hell. Give me a task. I'll do it. But sometimes just that time of prayer and dependence upon the Father and not on my own strength can be a very real challenge. So Jesus tells him to stay awake and pray, and off he goes again. The second time he prays, it's a little bit different, though, and I want you to catch the, the little bit of a nuance that's, that's here, a little bit of a difference. In Matthew 26, 42, and again, a second time he went and prayed, and he said, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. You see the difference? If it cannot pass unless I drink it. If what cannot pass? If God's wrath upon mankind cannot pass unless Christ takes it upon himself, so then I will take it, bring it on. If it cannot pass unless I drink this cup, if there's no way to appease God's wrath for, for what we deserve, for the punishment that we deserve for, for rebellion against God, for the sin that we know that we're all guilty of. And Jesus said, if, if that can't pass, if there's no way to quench the wrath of God, the judgment of God on mankind, without me going to the cross, then I'll do it. Then I'll do it. It appears as though after seeing the disciples couldn't even stay awake for an hour. <laughs> it almost seems like Jesus' prayer changes from uh, grief to determination. Jesus started out very sorrowful, and I think the realization that his disciples who would want to follow him can't, they're going to be scattered, even though they were with him. Even though they, they declare verbally their allegiance, they won't be able to stand with him. They will deny him. And, and even though they say that they'll do whatever, they can't even stay awake and pray because their, their body, their flesh is weak, even though their spirit is willing. I think that that created, it, in my mind, it just demonstrates the resolve then that Jesus has as he looks at his disciples and realizes if they can't even stay awake, how could they possibly accomplish all that God wants? And isn't that the message of the scriptures all the way through? When, when the Israelites were given the law of Moses, it wasn't just to show how good they could be. It also pointed out how bad they could be. The purpose of the law, according to Paul in the book of Romans, is to show us our need for a savior because we can't keep it perfectly. And even with God's law given and God's son given, we still couldn't get it right. So Jesus looks at his disciples and comes back and says, okay, God, if this is the only way, Father, that your judgment on mankind can be avoided for people so that these ones that I love cannot face your wrath, I'll do it. I'll do it. We see in this prayer actually three different times that he prays. 
that Jesus overcomes his flesh and proves that his spirit is not only willing, but that he is able to do the will of the Father, unlike the disciples. He will drink the cup and see his Father's will accomplished. I think it's interesting that um, when he got up from prayer the second time, he goes back and he finds the disciples sleeping again. He doesn't even bother waking them up. It's like, hey, I'm going to go back and pray again. And he just leaves them there sleeping and goes back and prays a third time the same message. The Luke, in his account of this, actually tells us one of the reasons the disciples fell asleep. And I think we should keep this in mind because it's easy for us to look at the disciples and be very condescending. You know, like, well, how could they fall asleep? Um, in Luke 22:45, it says, when he came up from prayer and he came to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from their grief. They were mourning the fact that they were going to lose their rabbi, their mentor, their friend, that they were going to see him suffer. They were mourning what Jesus even said about them, denying him and being so emphatic about it. How could it be? How could we do this? And their grief and their mourning was so great that it exhausted them. So Jesus doesn't wake them up. He lets them sleep and he goes back to prayer a third time. So Jesus prayed three times, right? Y'all caught that. What other reference to three do we have in this passage? Jesus told Peter, you will deny me three times. We have a contrast being made between Jesus and Peter. Peter said, Jesus told Peter he would deny him three times. Jesus took three disciples with him to pray, Peter, James, and John. And he said, pray lest you fall into temptation. And three times Jesus finds all of them have failed. Um, The first time he calls Peter out. Peter is trusting in his own ability and he's going to fail because of that. Jesus, by remaining connected to the Father and going off and speaking to his Father about the situation and trusting his Father, not only will overcome the physical but the spiritual and he will do the will of the Father. Three times Peter fails to even pray. Three times Jesus submits his will to the Father. There is a contrast here. And while we see the utter and complete failure of the disciples to even stay awake three times, we also see Jesus' complete surrender to the plan of the Father three times. So I think the lessons for you and I are are quite obvious, aren't they? I think we'll find in different times of our lives, it'll be easier to be more like Jesus. And at other times in our lives, we may find ourselves more like Peter. So let's continue through Matthew 26, verse 47. And while he was still speaking, remember, he woke up his disciples after the third time and he said, hey, look, the time has come. My betrayer's here. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. Notice they don't even name Judas's name. His betrayer had given them a sign. The one I kiss, he is the one. Arrest him. So immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, Why have you come? Then they came up, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. And at that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. And then Jesus told him, Put your sword back in its place, because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. 
Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me, but all this has happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. So Judas arrives with an army, kisses Jesus, and Jesus is arrested. The details are pretty straightforward. Um, Judas and his entourage came under the cloak of night to avoid the crowds and to avoid a scene. We know that that was part of their goal. Um, There's an army because they expected that there would be some type of resistance, either from the mobs that followed him. Remember, he had a lot of followers from Galilee that came with him. Um, He was very popular in the temple, or possibly the disciples forming an uprising against him. So there was a crowd that had clubs. <laughs> and they, were, they, were coming, they were coming fully armed to take Jesus in. And there's even official representation from the chief priests and elders. So you have the, the servant of the, of the priest, was the high priest that was there. His name was Malchus. His ear gets chopped off, and actually only Luke, the physician, records the fact that Jesus reached up and healed his ear. Or else there might have been a fourth person crucified on, the, on a cross, uh, because they would have certainly taken Peter in for that. But uh, Jesus reaches up and heals him. There's other cool stuff in here, but I want us to focus on, on a few things in particular. At the end, it says, then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. We started our passage with Jesus telling his disciples, looking him in the eye and saying, you will all desert me. And they said, no, not us. Not going to happen. We're with you, Jesus. And we end our passage with, and they all deserted him and ran away. Did the disciples flee because they feared being arrested? Quite possibly. Some think no. Some think yes. There's actually a fun story in the Gospel of Mark about, uh, that may think, us, think that perhaps they, they were afraid of being arrested. Mark chapter 14 and 50 says this, Then they all deserted him and ran away. And now a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. Um, The fact that they caught hold of him meant that they apparently were looking for people to take hold of, probably to implicate with Jesus, whether it was as witnesses or to arrest. So it could mean that they fled because they feared that they would be um, imprisoned or captured. So just hours before they pledged to die with Jesus, when confronted to, to do just that, they fled and they abandoned their commitment to Jesus. I want to ask you a very difficult question today. We have men who have been with Jesus for years, who have pledged their faith to Jesus, who have seen the miracles that he's done and know the goodness of what he's done, that are now abandoning him. What would it take for you to lose your faith in God? What would it take for you to turn your back on God? I'm certain that for some of us, as soon as we hear that question, the first reaction is, I would never turn my back on God. And we'd find ourselves in the exact same words of the disciples and of Peter. It's hard to know how we're going to react until your life is rocked. This is the story of Job, right? Job remained faithful, though. However, it's also the story of many others. All relationships, all covenants, such as marriage, 
our commitment to Christ. It's easy to stand during good times or easy times. It's what happens when things go sideways that are the true tests of relationship. Recently, I had the privilege of connecting, reconnecting with a former Bible college professor. He was not only a Bible college professor, he was a friend, he and his wife. And he took time to share with me and with Laura the amazing story of the grief and loss that he went through when his wife passed away from cancer just a few years ago. He openly admitted that he stopped talking to God, that he walked away from his faith, and that he wanted to take his life. All of which he was shocked could ever happen to him. But grief and fear and anger, raw emotion can be so overwhelming that it can cause even those who seem to be rock solid to turn their backs on God. This was a man who counseled others in their trials and in their grief to remain faithful to God. This is a man who spent over 40 years teaching people about the goodness and mercy of God. And yet this brother admitted that he walked away from God. What would it take for you to lose your faith in God? Perhaps you're listening to this message and you've already lost your faith in God. The message of hope that God has for you is that he still wants to meet you ahead in your journey. At any time, he's ready to welcome you back. He told his disciples, these things are going to happen. You'll abandon me, but I will be in Galilee and I will go ahead of you. He is ahead of you waiting for you to come back. No matter how much you've denied him or how much you've turned away from him, he's glad to welcome you back if you will simply just meet him. James chapter 4, verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I'm glad to report, and I am so um, thrilled to be able to share with you that my professor um, and friend is talking to God once again. And he has embraced the will of God for his life. He's found joy once again. And he's now spending his days telling others of how they can be reconnected with God even when they've turned their back on God. And I think he would want you to know that that's an experience you can have as well. So as we wrap up this section, we're reminded that even if we'd fall away, that Jesus is waiting for us to come back. And maybe that's the message you needed to hear this morning. And you simply need to stop and to say, you know what, doesn't matter what I've done, I know he's willing to accept me back. I just need to go back to him. But maybe you're going through some tough times and you haven't quite given up on God yet. We're reminded also that though this is a message for us when we fail, the greater message is that because we know we will fail, God's plan of redemption is the most important one of all. God's plan of redemption, Jesus took the cup because he knew that we would fail. And the only way for us not to face God's wrath was was for Jesus to do what he did. Um, Jesus said, listen, these things are happening because this is what the fathers wanted from the beginning. Um, 
Matthew has brought that out many different times. Matthew 26, 56 says, but all this happens so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Well, which prophets? What did they say? There's a lot of them. Not only did they say that the sheep would be scattered, they said the shepherd would be killed, that he'd be rise again, that he'd be exalted. Um, however, as we track the last days of Matthew, the final days of Jesus' humanity um, uh, before his crucifixion, I want us to note together as we close a scripture passage in Isaiah 53. We're going to read it together because I want you to hear about what Isaiah said hundreds of years before Christ showed up so you can understand why Jesus knew that God was in control and how you can know that God is in control and what God said he would do, he actually did. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like him, uh, before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look on him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we're healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. But after his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. It's my prayer that you know the love of God that sacrificed so much that you could be restored to him. And that once restored, that you would be able to stand firm in your faith by the power of his Spirit.